September is National Recovery Month. If you or someone you care about may be facing mental and or substance abuse disorders, the hotline number I'm about to give you may help. It is a free confidential referral and information service. English and Spanish languages are available. The number is 1-800-662-HELP. 1-800-662-4357. The hotline is sponsored by the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. It is an agency within the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Hey there, you're dialed into Reboots, featuring stories about people who have been forced to start over, either through their own missteps or through no fault of their own. All walks of life, anonymous or named, High profile or low down. Stories with heart, soul, and grit. Because knowing and sharing our stories is essential for living a life of joy, experiencing healthy relationships, and impacting the world around us in a positive way. Now, here's your host, Tracy Winchell. Welcome to episode R010. This Reboots story features Chris Ioannidis, who says the most selfish aspect of his life is giving back? Chris is the director of the Riverview Hope Campus in Fort Smith, Arkansas, and how he walked away from a successful family business and into the business of homelessness is quite a remarkable story. In this interview, Chris tells us about a family holiday, a self-improvement book, and an addict's confession scrawled on a legal pad that ultimately changed everything. We'll ask Chris about his time in treatment and his dad's amazing response to Chris's decision to walk away from the family car dealership. Plus, we want to know how he expects to make a difference in the lives of homeless women and men. Here's a hint. It's the healing power of community. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. One of the things I like to ask people is, where you tell your story, you're, you're kind of accustomed to telling your story. Where do you share your story? My stories usually are in a um, confined setting, if you will. Treatment centers, jails, institutions, okay. AA meetings. What do you get out of sharing your story? I suppose to give somebody hope. Um to let people know that there is an out, it can happen. Um, if I survived it, I suppose anybody can survive it. Next question, just overall. The show is called Reboots. Do you think that that your reboot has more to do with a moment in time or maybe a choice that you made? I think my reboot is a moment in time. I think I lost my choice moons ago, um, in terms of addiction at least. Um, once I crossed that threshold, as I say, there was no really turning back for me. Um, as a licensed therapist as well, I've studied different um, ideologies and, and methods, and there's a deal called stages of change. And not until I was ready to quit and not until I knew that I had a problem was I ready to quit. So as an example, a guy with five DUIs 
should have known probably on DUI number two, you might have a drinking problem. It took me another, you know, 10 years and three DUIs to actually say, okay, I'm ready. I'm, I'm going to either kill myself or I'm going to hurt somebody else and I need to, whatever. The light bulb came on somehow or another. And I quit. Let's just dive in with that. That was a process, of course. But <laughs> What was your life like leading up to this moment of crisis? Good days, bad days. Um, I've lived a good life. I've lived a very blessed life. Um, I was self-employed for 20 years. I was a partner with my father in a car dealership. Um, we worked hard, but we played hard. Um, I didn't really have much to worry about, to be frank. Um, it afforded me the opportunity to do a lot of things, including drugs. Um, and then it slowly just kind of spiraled over the years, would spiral down. And it's probably more internally for me. Just I didn't feel good. I didn't. I knew something was not right. And you have to be ready, I think. You have to be ready to just say, I've had enough. Throw in the white towel. Throw in the white towel. And I remember my day like no other. Tell me about it. Well, um, we were back home, which is Cheyenne, Wyoming. And once a year, we would go on a family vacation. And my father and stepmom um, have they have some property up in Saratoga Wyoming and they belong to this golf course it's a country club of some sort and so we would all the kids would fly home um, I wouldn't because I live there of course but uh, we would all meet and grandma would come up and my godmother would come out and it was just a big family function and once a year we'd get together and hang out for about four days and eat drink play golf and just do family stuff and um so I was, we were up there, it was over the 4th of July weekend, as always. Um, I was in my little uh, rental townhome, because we all had our little different apartments, if you will, um, waiting to go to dad's for pre-drinks before we went to dinner. And I'd been reading a book, and it was the, the five, five Steps or Seven Steps to Spirituality. And I'd been reading it. And so I was at home and I got to this chapter and it basically in a nutshell, paraphrasing was, it's time to come clean with your issues. And so I kind of take a step back and I don't know what I ended up doing, but um, fast forward to that evening, I had grabbed a legal pad and I just started writing. And it was basically a confession. So, and I knew how the night would play out because I had done it for several years. So we go to dad's and Kathy's um, townhome deal and we're sitting there, we're hanging out and dad does a few announcements and hands out some different gifts for the kids and yada, yada, yada. And so I'm like, I'd like a couple minutes of the floor if I could. And so dad's like, sure, whatever, you know. So I get up and I start reading this three page confession letter that I'm an addict and I need help. So that was my defining moment. I think that was a, uh, a sign from somewhere that said, 
it's it's time to relieve that burden that I've been carrying. And uh, so I came clean. Oh, my. Oh, my. <laughs> Pretty much. Oh, my. So it's a celebratory occasion, and all of a sudden, Chris takes all the air out of the room, huh? Pretty much, yeah. What was the reaction? Happy, sad, um, a lot of tears. Um, that's really about it. I mean, it was it was monumental, clearly, because um, you got to keep in mind too. Dad and I have worked together for twenty years, and honestly, he had no idea. I mean, as an addict, we hide things very well, and we think we can maintain and we think we can function, but eventually, it quits working. So, um, there was probably some shock in the room. And so the next phase is treatment? The next phase is treatment. So, um, being self-employed, so to speak, um, the only boss I really have is my father. So we chat about it and he says, I think you just need to take a sabbatical. And I had admitted that I wanted to seek treatment. That's what I wanted to do. I was, I wanted to go get help and start over, you know, reboot. Um, so we got home, I think on Monday or Tuesday and it took me about a week and I researched, I don't know, half a dozen different treatment centers, um, traveled to a few of them. It sounds odd and sounds strange, but, um, it's just kind of who I am, and I wanted to make sure that whoever I was going to was going to, I don't want to say fix me, but teach me what I needed to be taught. And I wanted to make sure that whoever I was dealing with was in recovery. Because clearly, I already knew that I was the master of facade. So I wanted to make sure that I wasn't going to be able to pull the wool over somebody else's eye. I wanted somebody to be able to call me out, and, and I wanted to have them share that experience with me. Um, so anyway, so after touring a couple different places, um, I found a place in Aurora, Colorado. It's part of the Anschutz hospital. It's called Cedar. And within two weeks, I admitted myself. Um, and I spent 30 days in Aurora, Colorado in treatment. And that worked for you. That's kind of unusual. It's very unusual. Um, Again, going back to that stages of change thing, I, I was ready. I, I, I knew internally that I was ready. So when I came out of treatment, um, I still took another 60 days off of work um, just to focus on me. Um, they asked me if I would continue IOP, intensive outpatient program, which was in Boulder, Colorado. So I agreed to that. I wanted to volunteer a little bit at the treatment center that I was at. So I spent my first 45 days after treatment driving to Denver every day. And that's how I kind of stayed connected um, with guys and gals like me, you know. And I found myself talking to them and a couple of the counselors that I were helping me while I was in treatment, you know, there's like, well, you know, Chris, if you're going to be around here during the day volunteering, do you mind talking to a few of them, reaching out, you know, 
giving them that little bit of hope that, you know, it could be okay and it maybe will be okay. And so I started kind of doing that a little bit here and there. And then on Thursday afternoons, I would leave there early and I would go to Boulder and, and do my IOP for about two hours. Um, so I did that for about 60 days. So altogether, I was out of work 90 days and then I went back to work. And what you do now has nothing to do with selling cars. So there's a whole other reboot. You get sober, you get clean, and then this other transformation I'm imagining takes place. Otherwise, you wouldn't be the director of the Riverview Hope Campus in Fort Smith, Arkansas. Correct. So one of the things that one of my counselors told me in treatment was is before you make any changes in your life, anything big, make sure you're sober for a year. I thought, okay, fair enough. You know, I've tried to do things my way for, at that time, 40 years of my life, and they clearly were not working out. So I thought I would give it a shot and see how this other advice would work. So it was probably, and I didn't mark it in my calendar, but pretty close to a year later um, that I was really questioning my presence at the dealership and my role at the dealership and whether or not I was even happy being in automobiles anymore. Um, we'd really expanded um, a lot. We had a lot of employees and just high stress level. It just kind of comes with the territory anyway. And um, I'd been doing it for 20 years. So I just, I don't know, I was just having second thoughts, I suppose. So I had a lot of trouble, a lot of struggles trying to find help um, when I originally wanted to get help. As an example, I won't say their names, but I would call a therapist place in town and said, I'm really struggling and I need to really get a handle on this addiction. And I, I, I want to quit and I'm ready. And they all but said, go get another DUI and then we can we can take you when you're in trouble again. I said, well, that just doesn't work for me. I just, you know what I mean? Because if I go back out again, I might die, and I'm just not ready ready to die yet. So that always kind of was a crawl in me. Um, so over this year, I'm thinking my mindsets just started to change. Like maybe I should go back to school and become and open up a treatment center is where this original thought came from. And I just wanted to kind of give back, if you will, to the suffering alcoholic, drug addict, addict whatever we want to call them. So I went to my father um, about a year later after I was sober and said, I'm considering making a career change. And we went back and forth for probably three or four months, I suppose. Um, Cause you got to keep in mind, dad is wanting to retire. Sure. I'm buying the stock now of the business so he can retire and then, this changes everything. This changes everything. Just everything. Um, thank God I was the only child in the business. It was just dad and I, everybody else, all of my other siblings went and did other things. So it didn't get that complicated, but it did put a stop in a lot of stuff that we were doing. Um, a lot of his plans, you know. Um, and yes, I feel bad um, for doing some of that stuff. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, four or five months into it, in these conversations with dad, he finally came to me and he said, live your dream. Don't live my dream. So, and then that was the okay to go do what I wanted to do. 
you know. Um, so that was another big milestone. Um, he sounds like a really cool dad. He's a good man. He's a good man. Um, he's got a great heart. And, um, he's, I think, like most parents or most siblings, they have a hard time understanding addiction and they don't really get it. And why don't you just quit? But I think over the years, it's it's grasped his mindset and he understands it better. So, <laughs> you know, so anyway, so I took, um, I started researching schools and classes and I'm 40 years old at that time. Scared, <laughs> you know, clearly. Um, so dad and I, we finalized our um, buy sell in a sense to buy me back out now again. And I left work December 31st, 2008, and I went back to school January 2009 at the local community college where I spent my next two years getting my associate's degree in human services. And then I transferred to University of Wyoming, which is 45 minutes away from Cheyenne, and got my bachelor's in social work there. And then I would continue on. A couple years later, I did a one-year advanced program and did my master's and completed that in 2015. And so that gets you to standing up a, a hope campus for the homeless in our region. How, how That's still a leap. Still a leap. So 2000... I went back to school in 2009, so I believe it was 2011. 2000, yeah, at the end of 2011, I'm at UW, uh, University of Wyoming. I'm, I have to do an assignment for one of my classes, and I went to the local homeless shelter in Cheyenne called the Camilla Shelter. And I interviewed Robin, who ended up being my boss. And after about an hour and a half, I just kind of asked her, do you ever take interns? Because I knew I was going to have to get do some intern jobs. Um, clearly, I know nothing about homelessness. I've never been homeless. I've always held a job. Um, always had a house. Always paid my rent or my house payments, my car. You know, I mean, it just I've, I've was never in that position. And she agreed that yes, she does take interns and she thought that, you know, I would be a good fit. She knew a little bit about my story, not a lot um, at that point. Um, so I contacted UW and said, I found a place where I wanted to intern at. And they said, okay, as long as you got it arranged, boom. So I started interning late 2011. Three months into that, the case manager quit. He's, he was going to get married. And so he moved to Vegas. The shelter in Cheyenne, it's a smaller operation. And so Robin came to me and she said, would you be interested in working here? And I said, yeah, as long as you're flexible with my time, because obviously I'm in school. I'm not going to quit school. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm bent on opening up my own practice to help the suffering addicts, um, whether it's a treatment center or just private practice, whatever. But that's in my head, that's what I was going to go do. And she says, no problem. I'll work around your schedule. Five and a half years later, I was still there. <laughs> um, and I was capped out there. Um, she wasn't going anywhere. Um, you know, I love her to death. But my now my skill set with 
20 years in business and 20 years in the people business combined with, you know, seven years of education and my personal experience with addiction and now my newfound love for the homeless. And it just, I wanted to, I wanted her job, honestly, is what I wanted. Um, and we talked about it openly, but <laughs> she wasn't ready to retire. So, um, and I wasn't looking for a job. I'll make that clear. And she knows that. So I was just surfing the net one day and I ran across an article and which led me to the Hope Campus, Riverview Hope Campus website. And just thumbing through it, looking at it. And I'm reading their model and I like their model. It's a one-stop shop, something that I had struggled with in Cheyenne um, with my clients because everything is spread out all over the city. And I thought, boy, it would be nice to have everything under one roof. And my boss and I would share those conversations. And she went to the city, and the city doesn't want any part of it. They don't want, we don't want the homeless downtown, this, that, and the other. And same old, same old. Um, so anyway, so we often would have conversations about how nice it would be to have something like that. And so I found myself on the Hope Campus website, and there was this little icon, and it said, now hiring. So tell me about the project. What are what what is the Riverview Hope Campus about? So the Riverview Hope Campus is a, a social services agency. Um, the model is being based on some that have been done in Dallas, Texas, San Antonio, Texas, and I just found out actually yesterday that there's actually one in Little Rock called Our House. Um, the biggest difference between that one and the others is Our House in Little Rock. They uh, they allow children and stuff to to spend the night there. They're more family friendly, if you will. Um, not that we don't like families, but just we're not going to be set up for families. So it's twofold: social services campus. We have um, it's a forty thousand square foot facility. In it is a cafeteria. We have laundry facilities. We have a dentist chair. We have a barber chair. We have a big classroom. We have a library. And we also have a multi-purpose room. We also are going to have 2,000 square feet of dedicated space to bring in additional partners. So as an example, my four areas of goals are employment, education, housing, and health. In those four categories, my last four months here in Fort Smith, I've been reaching out to different agencies saying, would you like to maybe move your agency to us? And I'll just you keep your program. I'm not going to tell you how to do your program, but I don't want to reinvent the wheel either. So in a sense, I would almost be their landlord, so to speak. You know, just they move their system agency over to us and they can just house with us. That way, when we take in somebody that's underserved and or homeless, we have a one stop shop model for employment, education, housing and health. On the health side of things. Inside our building attached is Mercy Clinic. They also have 5,000 square feet of clinic space. They're going to have a full-time doctor, full-time nurse. So you come into the campus side of things, and we determine that you're high blood pressure and you're out of pills or whatever. We can send you right next door, see the doc. He writes the script. You get your script filled. Your blood pressure is back in line. You're better. Um, one thing I forgot to mention, 
in addition to the campus, we also have a shelter within it. And it's a 75-bed low-barrier shelter as well. What does low-barrier mean? Low-barrier means if you decided you were going to go have a drink at 3 o'clock this afternoon, um, if you were to attempt to get into any other agencies here in in, uh, Fort Smith into a shelter, you would be turned away because you've had a, a drink. Low barrier means I will accept you for who you are. If you come in drunk, as long as you're behaving, everything is going to be just fine. No different than if you were walking down the street. If you misbehave, we're going to be behavior-based. If, um, if you come in drunk, as an example, and you're just really mean, or if you're a harm to yourself or a harm to others, we'll call law enforcement, and then you'll go to jail and spend the night there. So our whole purpose is to bring everybody together, serve the same client, the underserved slash homeless, and give them a hand up, not a handout. Self-sufficiency will be key. Um, We're going to try to do a lot of preventative stuff. Um, It's a whole lot less expensive if I can prevent you from being homeless Um, As an example, let's say you lost your job today and you need some help with rent. There's agencies here in town that deal with that. They can get you caught up on rent. Rather than ignoring it, you get evicted. Then you end up in my shelter side of things. And then it takes you six months to get out of that position because it takes you a while to, you know, find a job, save money to get first month's payment, security deposit, utility deposits. It adds up. It's not a a cheap proposition to to move into your own place anymore. And rules and regs from the landlord side of things are getting stiffer. So how can somebody be a part of this? I mean, we we have a lot of listeners in Fort Smith, but every week people all over the country, in fact, all over the world, hear this podcast. So how can somebody get involved with this project? Several ways, Tracy. Um... Right now, my, my complete focus is bringing on partners. Um, we also need lots of volunteers. Um, we were just talking yesterday. I would love to do a clothes closet. I need a church, a family, an individual, somebody to, to step up and say, I've got 15 hours a week that I just, I need something to do. I need, you know what I mean? Uh, maybe a group project. Um, to come in and and help us weekly with the clothes closet, if you will. Um, We're looking to, we have a beautiful kitchen. We're going to have what we call a casserole program. So you and your friends, whether it's, you know, just friends, friends or friends from church or work friends, and you get a half a dozen uh, friends that say, let's do this project. We're going to do a casserole program. So once a month you come in and serve our residents dinner. So you come in, use our food, cook it. we got a beautiful kitchen. It's all going to be brand new. Serve it all up. Clean up after yourselves, of course, just like we would do it at our own home. Go on your merry way. Everybody feels good. It's just, you know, and, and we got to feed 100-plus people that night as an example. Wow, that's cool. It is cool. From a, from a therapeutic standpoint... How do you see 
teens getting involved in, say, a casserole project or a closed, how does that help a parent keep a youth from maybe going through the things that you went through? I have a couple schools of thought on that. Um, some people might not like all of my thoughts on it, but that's kind of who I am. I just asked. <laughs> yeah. Um, I envision, and I think it's a great vision, and, and my experience in Cheyenne at the shelter there, um, bringing your, your children into the shelter is, a, honestly, it's just incredible. Um, they need to see that side of life and that it does exist. Um, depending on the age and their developmental stage, do they understand it all? Maybe, maybe not. Um, but even my, I, I have a seven-year-old daughter and I would let her just run ragged at the shelter in Cheyenne. I mean, I trusted everybody and they watched out after her like no other. Um, but she has such a good heart that, I mean, we had a deal just a couple of weeks ago and it was coming up on her birthday and she wants to donate blah, blah, blah to the homeless, you know, um, so whether or not we planted that seed, and we probably did, you know, which is good. The other side of that, um, in terms of the the addiction side of things, I make it real clear that not everybody's an addict. Um, I'm not naive enough, even as a parent, to think that, you know, even my own child is not going to go try to have a drink, maybe smoke a joint, whatever. Um, what I tell the the kids and I go to some schools every once in a while and I'll share my story is I'm not giving you permission to try it, but if you try it and you like it, beware because that's what I didn't understand. I liked it and I liked it a lot. You know, if, if you try it and you're like, yeah, whatever, you're probably safe. <laughs> you know what I mean? Or at least for now. I mean, obviously things can change, but for us to think, or for me at least, to think they're not going to try it, um, it's just not true. I think everybody's going to try something, you know, for the most part, unless they have some sort of personal experience, you know, that maybe they're the child of the alcoholic and he or she was very abusive or whatever the story is, and they just, they do not want to end up like my mom or don't want to end up like my dad and, and never touch that drink. But I think those are probably fewer and far between than most folks just, I'm going to go have a beer, you know? So do you think that the message as a parent is less about drugs and more about the dangers of addiction? Maybe, maybe, I don't know. You know, I don't, I guess even as a parent, my daughter's only seven. So, I mean, right now that conversation hasn't even been brought up to be frank. Um, and she's never seen me drunk. So it's, it, that's also, I guess, I suppose a nice bonus. Um, I guess, I, I don't know. It probably goes both ways. Someone's listening and maybe they're trying to decide if they have a problem or not. How do they decide if they need to do something different? Drinking as an example? Anything, yeah. Quit. Put your drink down right now and walk away. Call Tracy in 30 days and tell her I did it or I didn't do it. There's 
and I don't know the exact amount. I want to say there's like 16 questions in one of the AA brochures. It says, do you think you're an alcoholic? <laughs> I mean, you could take one of those tests, I suppose. Fail miserably. But then I would revert back to, well, that's just a piece of paper. That paper doesn't know me. I don't have a drinking problem. So I still think it will go back to, are we ready? Have we had enough? Circumstances made me willing. Have you not had enough bad things happen in your life? And do you do you think that, I mean, you talk about an event that sort of began your reboot. And then there was this career reboot. Was this sort of an awakening kind of a thing? Or was it a choice or a series of choices? And, and how does that how does that transfer to someone who just really feels stuck and they know things need to be different and they have no idea where to start and they're scared to death like you were going into treatment and like you were saying, Dad, I don't want to be part of the family business and I'm 40 years old and I'm going to start over. How does one make that turn? Leap. (laughs) (laughs) Because you're right. Fear is horrific, you know, and I have fear in my life today. Um, I would seek faith. I would seek your higher power, God, Buddha, whoever you, you know, report to the door handle as I've been, you know, have said before, um, you just have to do it. Um, insanity, look up the definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over, expecting different results. If, if we want to change, we have to do things. We have to, at some point in our life, we have to take control of what we want to, of the outcome. You know, somebody higher than me is taking care of all the other stuff. And I get that and I understand that. And I'm not trying to control all that. But eventually I had to get out of bed and say, okay, Chris, you need to really take a hard look because this is, something's just not right. You're going through Whatever girlfriends and I, I wasn't going through jobs, but you know, most of us do, you know, and I say us, cause I'm still an addict through and through, you know, I just, I channel it differently now, <laughs> you know? Um, so I don't know how you would tell somebody that. I mean, I've talked to, I'm blue in the face to friends of mine. I just, just um, two and a half weeks ago tops. Um, I got a phone call from a good friend of mine and from his sister and he is in the hospital with liver failure and he's a really good friend of mine. Um, we've been in and out of the meetings a lot together. I've sponsored him. I don't want to say he's going to die. I pray that he gets it, but I don't know if he will. I mean, it's, that's not in our control. It's not in my control. I mean, he has seen firsthand me change my life. He has seen firsthand everybody else. Not everybody, but a lot of people change their lives. Why does he continue to drink that bottle? Cunning, baffling, powerful, as they say. So, sad, but true. It is. And that and accepting other people's decisions, that's a whole other thing, isn't it? Yes. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's from a therapist's point of view too, there comes a point where you can't enable them either. And we can't save everybody. And they have to hit that bottom and just hope that it's not death. And that's where if you love someone who is in the throes of an addiction, community is also helpful. There's not a right or wrong answer, is there, for when to push and how hard to push? I don't think so. I mean, no, no. I think it's all timing. I think it's just all timing. I mean, the stars have to be aligned in the right moment at that right time. And then it's like, bam, okay, yeah. Because I can talk to somebody, it's whatever, say if you're clean for six months and your life is hunky-dory, you know. My real struggles became, once I became sober, you know, in reality, I didn't know how to live sober, you know. And a lot of people talk about that. It's easy to quit drinking, so to speak, but how do you stay stopped? You know, what do we do differently? I had to change everything about myself, my daily structure, and it still holds to this day. I mean, I get up every morning within five or ten minutes at the same time. I do some daily readings. I go to Facebook. I post something at 6.30. I'm in the shower and, and at work by 7, 7.15. But that's every morning, my morning ritual is, it's just a ritual now. Um, And if that thing breaks, you start to wonder about other things breaking. Right. I'm just, I think humans are creatures of habit anyway. Um, I know for me, I'm, I'm ADD. Um, I'm medicated with it now. You know, one pill a day keeps me for the most part pretty level. I can stay focused, um, that was a lot of my issue that I never really addressed, though. Um, I didn't address my ADD till 11, 12 years ago. And that was a lot of my pot problem. You know, I smoked marijuana to slow my brain down. Now I just take a pill. Under a doctor's care. Under a doctor's yeah. care. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I already got my PhD in drugs, so. This <laughs> <laughs> is hard school of Knox. All right. So, is there a is there a book or a film or music, something that you would recommend to someone who really needs to break out and make a change, or love someone who is struggling, and they they in turn. Are struggling. I think the biggest thing that we can do is probably just reach out. And, and it's, I think it's an old telephone thing. Reach out and touch someone, um, whoever that was. I forgot, but just reach out. Just just talk to somebody. Um, and I'm not going to pitch any one program or another, but there's lots of them. I mean, there's there's Alcoholics Anonymous. There's Celebrate Recovery. Um, there's just they're everywhere. I even did meetings online for a long time because of my school schedule and, and you know what I mean, work schedule. And I still wanted to go to meetings because to me, that's just, that's my new found family. Um, If I'm having a bad day, I can go into a meeting and share my frustrations before I go home to take it out on my dog or my wife or my child, you know. Um, Just because you're sober does not mean that life is always going to still be okay. You might get a divorce. 
I went through a bad breakup, bad breakup. I mean, I came home to an empty house and it was my house. Oh no. Right. And so, and it was probably the true test, you know, but I went to the one person that I knew I could count on my father. And so I went to him and said, you know, and I broke down. I'm like, you know, she took my house, she took my money, blah, 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 you know, poor me, poor me. So what do you do? Get right back up on that horse and start over. You know, stuff happens. You know, I'm still going to get sick. I'm still going to have to go to the doctor. Um, my thought process is different. Um, I could. I had a tooth pulled, wisdom tooth. You know, they wanted to give me oxycontins or something crazy. So you know, I've never been a pill guy, but I just give me something high powered, but not something that's going to mind alter my brain. Um, so I, I'm full self-disclosure and that's how I do it with anybody. And once, once you're in sobriety for a while, it, it, it gets easier, but it doesn't get easier, so to speak. Um, you know, I still have my challenges, but with friends now they'll just, Chris, you want a water? Cause that's all I drink is water. I don't even drink pop. I don't drink coffee. I don't, nobody tempts me, you know, nobody's, oh, come on, just have one. That don't happen. So it's less about reading and learning and more about community then. I think so. I think, and especially for me, giving back for me is, is huge in my recovery. Give something to somebody that maybe that they don't have. And whether that's just a voice, an ear, maybe it's a dollar bill out of my pocket so they can get on the bus. Um, it helps me more than it helps them, I'm sure. And that's the, the selfish side of the program, you know, but that's just, it's the way it works. It's weird. Give back, you feel better. One more, one more question about the Riverview Hope Campus, mm-hmm. giving back and you feel better. What's your vision like for two years from now and how you think that that a successful campus is going to impact not only your recovery, but this entire region. What does that look like for you? Oh my goodness. Um, I'm excited for Hope Campus. Um, you know, this is, Hope Campus originated back in 2009 is when it all started. Um, just to kind of give you a little backdrop on it, but this is truly is going to be, needs to be a community involvement. Um, I'm just here as the conductor, so to speak, you know, just orchestrating it. Um, but it will pass or fail depending on the community involvement. It just would be blunt. Um, whether it's financial, whether it's volunteer time, whether it's donating um, cases of water, Whatever it might be, whatever the community needs are that we're going to be housing at the campus, I mean, this is all, this is we. It's not me. It's not Tracy. It's not Jimmy here. And it's not XYZ from, you know, this church. It's not this homeless person. It's, this is a community event, community partnership. Um, I envision serving and helping hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people a month. Um, 
I would like to see us expand. Uh, we have a monster building. I would like to see us expand into a lot of prison reentry stuff. Um, I have this space to do it. Unfortunately, low-income housing is, is not readily available in Fort Smith. So, again, community problem. Not, you know, not Hope Campus' problem. It is in a sense, but we need, we, the city, community, needs inexpensive housing. If I get released from prison, technically I'm homeless. So where do I go? Well, if I can't find a shelter to go to, more than likely, as, a, as an addict in recovery myself, I'm going to go back to what I'm comfortable doing if I have nowhere to go. Then I'm probably going to end up back in jail. So if we can offer a place for these guys and gals to come to, a home, if you will, for a short term, 90, 120 days, until they get work, get it acclimated back to life again, depending on how long you know they were you know in prison or jail or whatever, um, and then they'll move out, get into their apartment. I would love to see us collaborate with the Department of Corrections on something like that as well, because it's a huge need. Anything else? Life is good, and uh, I'm happy to share. Um, I'm an open book. I uh, I thank you for having me. Thank you for doing what you do. It's awesome. Thanks, Chris. Thank you. Oh, my goodness. Did you get that? That thing that Chris said? This thing. Give something to somebody that maybe they don't have. A voice, an ear, a dollar bill for bus fare. Why? Because, according to Chris, giving helps him more than it helps the other person. And I have to admit, I can't remember a time in the past couple of weeks when I gave of myself to someone else without expecting anything in return. And I'm going to be looking for an opportunity to change that soon. How about you? The Riverview Hope Campus in Fort Smith, Arkansas, or a shelter like it in your area, could probably use a couple of hours of your time or maybe even some extra rolls of toilet paper or clean blankets, pillows, something like that. Look them up. Give them a call. Thank you, Chris, for showing us a better way to live. If this story has helped you in some way, would you please let us know? T-R-A-C-Y at RebootsPodcast.com will keep your information confidential unless you give us permission to do otherwise. Do you know someone who could benefit from hearing Chris's story? Please share it. Thanks again to Tom Kirkham of Kirkham Systems in Fort Smith for his continual support of this podcast by way of our Patreon site. That's patreon.com forward slash Winchell Story Works. I'm Tracy Winchell, and we'll see you next time. We'd love to hear your reboot story privately on our StoryWorks blog or as a guest on an upcoming podcast. And we appreciate your feedback, either in the iTunes store or by way of email. Drop us a line, reboots at winchellstoryworks.com or on our website, winchellstoryworks.com.